the gospel of John is really a, a way of saying the gospel according to John. Uh, it is the, the, gos- the, the gospel story, the gospel narrative that was narrated by the, the Apostle John, one of the earliest disciples of Christ. And it is um, really a biography of Jesus. And so if you're here and you want to get to know more about Jesus, um, I encourage you to read through the Gospel of John. It gives you a picture of Christ, um, which uh, is life-giving and encouraging. That's the whole reason that he wrote the Gospel. He says these things are written so that you might believe, and that by believing you might have life in, my, in his name. And so if you're here and you don't know anything about Jesus, um, the Gospel of John is the absolute perfect place to start. The Gospel of John is the perfect book for you to, to read, to get to know more about Christ. And specifically, we are um, in John chapter 12. Uh, so that's a big 12 and the, the little number uh, 36. Uh, little number 36. And this is kind of a summary, sto- uh, summary passage. He's kind of summarizing a lot of what Jesus has already said uh, so far in the first half of the gospel before he turns the table and uh, he kind of gives us a little bit more um, instruction and knowledge for how Christians are supposed to live their lives. And so if you're here this morning and you don't know anything else about the Gospel of John, this is probably the best Sunday you could have come because uh, this, this summarizes what the Gospel in large part is all about. So if you guys won't mind looking with me, Gospel of John chapter 12, verse 36, it says this. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many things, so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him, so that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart in turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory. And spoke of him. Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. And Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me sees him who sent me. I've come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has given me a commandment what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. Father, have one more time. We ask that you give us eyes to see and ears to hear all that you have for us in your, in your word. Pray that you'd penetrate the hardness of our hearts. You'd wipe away the blindness of our eyes that we might see your son. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Many of you probably know the feeling that I had this week. I was expecting this package to come. I was waiting and waiting and waiting. And because we live in Maine, it takes 20,000 days longer than if it was going to any other part of the country. And I'm, so I'm waiting. And it actually came early. This giant package that came, and they dropped it on my, on, my, on my ramp over there. 
And I open it up, and right in there, I know not a, many of you are not going to think this is impressive at all. That's okay. It was a brand new treadmill. We'd been saving up for a treadmill. We had worn out our previous two treadmills, and we were so excited to get this brand new package. It just it had that new treadmill smell. I know I've, <laughs> I know I've lost all of you at this point. And uh, I was just so excited to get it and to try it out, and I lugged it down to my basement and set it up, and it took... Ten times longer to set up than it should have set up, but that's the story. And uh, tried it out, and it, it, as I was running on the treadmill, not exactly that time, but because I just bought this thing, I figured I should use it. I, I had this feeling that I had had before, which is, so that's all. That's all it is. I got this new thing, and that's all it is. And there, and not exactly disappointment, but the sense that maybe the. The hype, as I was expecting it, the anticipation, it did not live up to it. And I would say most of us probably live most of our lives hyping things up, looking up to things, anticipating things, wanting things. And when we finally get them, they are not what we anticipate. When we finally get that, that new job or we get that new car or we, uh, we're, maybe if we're single, we get into a romantic relationship or we get that child, uh, it, it's great, but it's just not exactly what we were looking for. We were looking for something to give us meaning and to give us purpose, to, to make us feel part of something that's bigger than ourselves, to, to transcend this, this life, and all we got was mere mortality. And, and yet, there's still a hunger in us, a, a deep longing, a deep desire to connect with something, to see something, to be part of something that's bigger than ourselves. And the Christian word for that is the word glory. The word glory in this passage is all about glory. It's all about the glory of the king of the universe, the glory of God. It's about the glory that will will always live up to what we anticipate it to be, and then some. The glory that will never let us down. It's, it's the water that when we drink of it will give us life, and yet we, will, we won't be thirsty, and yet we'll want more of it. It's the, it's the bread that we want that will fill us. It's the light that we're looking for that will wash away our, our, the blindness of our heart. We're, we're, we're looking for glory, and every time you pull out your phone and the sermon gets long and you're scrolling down that feed of Facebook or Snapchat or I don't know what else, X or whatever social media is, big. Um, every time you do that, you're looking for glory. You're looking just, just one more scroll, one more swipe, just one. I just want to find it. I know I'm missing it. It's got to be there. Well, if, you, if that's you this morning, come look no more because here is the thing that you've been looking for. Here in this passage is the glory of God for the eyes of men. And so I, what, what I want to do today is I want to talk about um, what is the glory of God? How can we see His glory specifically? And then I want to talk about why some don't see it. Then I want to talk about how we can see it. So how can we see the glory? Why some don't see it, and how we can see it? I know the second and the third are the same are the same question, but that's okay. Um, what is the glory of God? How do how can we see it? Well, well, the the word glory in the Old Testament, the Hebrew language, is the is the Greek word kabod. Okay, kabod, and kabod means heaviness or heftiness. It, it, it's, it, it's a very literal, very physical word. It means that something is weighty. It's, 
significant. And you can understand why that be, be, came to have a, a meaning that it, it was acquired even more than just the physical sense. It means that there's something weighty and important and significant. It's like the spiritual center of the universe. It's like this has this gravitational pull and everything, uh, everything that, that is significant finds its end in it. This is this idea of glorious, the, the weightiness, the worthiness, the significance, the importance of this thing that, that is glory. And God tells us in his word that Isaiah saw his glory. You guys know how stunning a statement verse 41 is? Isaiah saw his glory. When did Isaiah see his glory? Well, this passage in the New Testament um, cites two passages from the Old Testament. So uh, the Gospel of John, the author John, read the Old Testament well, and his, one of his favorite books in the Old Testament was a book um, by a guy named Isaiah. And Isaiah, he, he, he tells us two passages from the book of Isaiah. Um, he references them here that talk about the glory of God. And I'm going to do the second one first. Uh, in Isaiah chapter 6, and we read this just a minute ago, Isaiah gets this vision of the glory of God. That um, he, he's, he, he is praying and he gets this vision of God and he gets taken up into the throne room. And he, he sees in the center of the throne room the one who's on the throne. And he sees around him these angels. And they're, they're flapping, and they're giant, and they're ginormous, and they have eyes that are, uh, they have wings that are covering their eyes, and wings that are flapping, and wings that are covering their feet. And they are flying all around the throne for all eternity, crying out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And Isaiah gets this sense in front of such grandeur, in front of such majesty, that he is unworthy. That that is the supreme center of significance and worthiness and holiness in the entire universe. And he shouldn't be there. And he says, woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I come from a people of unclean lips. And he grieves because he knows that such an unworthy person should not be in the presence of someone who is so worthy. Such a, such a defiled person shouldn't be in the presence of someone who is so pure. And then God sends an angel, and an angel touches him with some of the coals from the altar and says, your sins are atoned for. That I've forgiven you, I've taken your sins, and I've, I've removed them from you as far as the east is from the west, that even though you are not blameless, I will treat you as blameless. Even though you are impure, I will treat you as pure. Even though you are a covenant breaker, I will treat you as covenant keeper. And then Isaiah says, or the Lord says, uh, who will go? And Isaiah says, who will tell the world about my glory? And Isaiah says, send me. And God says, okay, I'll send you. and I'll send you out. And we see this, this reference in verse 40. It's Isaiah 6.10. It says, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. And that's the end of that passage. That God is sending Isaiah to preach the gospel of salvation. He's sending to, to, to preach to them how they might turn and be healed. And that's the first vision of the glory of God that Isaiah sees. The second is from Isaiah 53. The second is from Isaiah 53, and we read this also a minute ago. It's a story of the suffering servant. It's a story of the, of the, the man who was plain spoken and who had no form or majesty that we should look at him. 
In Isaiah 53, this is in your bulletins, uh, in the responsive reading says this. Who has believed what he heard from us? You'll see that's quoted in verse 38 in John. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet he was, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. This song is is about what's called the suffering servant. It's, It's the one who takes on the punishment for the sins of the people. The one who, who the Lord is pleased to crush so that, he can, so that he can forgive others. It's the one who takes on the sins of the people of God. It says that he was smitten by God and afflicted. And Isaiah, John's point when he says, Isaiah saw his glory is to say, those are not two different things. The throne room of God and the glory of God and how God forgives us so that we can see his glory. That's not different than the story of the suffering servant. The glory is the same. That the glory of the one on the throne is the glory of the suffering servant. See, it's not just that the suffering servant comes and bears our sins. It's that God himself becomes the suffering servant. That God himself, the son, takes on our sins, takes on our chastisement. That the son himself takes our punishment. He takes our penalty. He stands in our place. Isaiah could be forgiven because the servant was not. Isaiah could be justified because the servant was condemned. Isaiah could be brought in because the servant was cast out. Isaiah could be healed because the servant was crushed. Isaiah could have peace with God because the servant had hostility from God. See, we are the ones who turned. We turned away from God, and yet the Lord turned away his own son, so that he could bring us to himself. This is the glory of God. When when John says, they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. What is the glory that comes from God? The glory that comes from God is the servant who suffers, who is the king. It's the king who comes down from his throne and hangs on the gallows. It's it's the king himself who takes on our penalty, our sin, our chastisement, so that you and I could be released and forgiven. If you're looking for the center of worth and significance, the the deepest pit of meaning that you can find, the, the, the most worthy, the most important, the most significant act that has ever happened, it's when the king himself becomes a slave. It's when that slave suffers for you and me. And Jesus is very clear, that's me. It's not just like a religious image. It's not just out there. It's not just theory. But Jesus says, that is me. I'm the one who was sent. I am the suffering servant. I am the one who was on the throne. That's me. 
He says, whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me, remember, this is the, the vision of Isaiah. He sees the king on his throne. And Jesus says, if you're looking at me right now, if you see me right now, you see the king on his throne. You see the suffering servant. So I came into the world as light to shine in the darkness. I came so that if you are in darkness, you might have light so that if you are blind, you might see. He says, I I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. And you ask, well, why would Jesus do this? He says, for I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment. The Father told me to. I went because I was sent. I do because I was told what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment, what the Father has sent me to do to die for your sins is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. Uh, Think about this, dear friends, that the God of the universe has decided. The God of the universe has decided that he's going to display his majesty and his grandeur and his glory and his honor and his worth and his significance. Not with gold and silver and shiny stones. Not with glitz and glamour. Not by winning some award. But the God of all eternity shows his glory in rusty nails and splintered wood. If you're looking for the glory of God, if you are looking to see the most important, the most significant thing in the universe. This is it. That This idea that God himself would come down from his throne and serve us by dying for us. What, what greater glory could there be than that? What greater glory could there be than this? Of course, we know that this is not the only time that the author of the Gospel of John makes this connection. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. How in, in the book of Revelation, one, one of the last, the last book in the New Testament, the, the same author who's writing the Gospel of John gets a vision just like Isaiah got. And he gets this vision of the throne. And he sees the one sitting on the throne and he sees four creatures and it looks like he was on a substance and there's a sea of glass that is that is stormy and torrent and it's all churning and, and yet it's still as glass. And he hears the, the angels crying out and 24 elders and they're crying out from eternity to eternity. Worthy is the one who sits on the throne. But the, the one on the throne has a seal and, and, and the gospel writer weeps, John weeps because no one is worthy to open the seal and, and an angel lifts up his head. says there is one to open the seal the lion of the tribe of Judah. And he looks and he expects to see a brave warrior, a mighty king, a strong conqueror. And what does he see? A lamb that is standing as though it had been slain. A sacrificial lamb bearing the scars of the crucifixion who nevertheless still stands. What more important, what more significant, what more glorious thing could there be than the king who reigns from the cross, than the shepherd who gives up his life for the sheep, 
And you know that's true. Don't you know that in your deepest being? That there's, there's no stories that are more powerful. There's no, no tale that is more wonderful than when somebody dies for another. Have you ever thought about how, how important it is that in all the best stories, that at the center of the story, at the crisis moment of the story, at the, the peak and the climax of the story, is when the hero gives up his life and enters into death. This is why Harry Potter had to die. It is. There would not be a story if he didn't have to die. Sorry, spoiler alert. <laughs> Sorry. I still haven't read the books. This is why Aslan got on the stone table. This is why Gandalf fell in fighting the Balrog. This is why Aragorn enters into the mountain where the, where the ghost in the Shadowland is. This is why Frodo has to die and lose his, himself and enter into Mount Doom. Not so that he could enjoy his homeland, but so that others could. The most important, the most worthy, the most glorious things in this life point to this reality that the king would come down from his throne and serve us by dying for us, that the shepherd would give up his life to save the sheep, that the glory of God would shine in the death of God. And Jesus is standing in front of all these people. And he's doing these signs and he's been ministering to them for years. He's been trying to tell them, that's me. I, that's me. I am the son of man. I am the living water. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. That's me. And they won't see it. They won't behold it. They won't receive it. Why not? Jesus himself acknowledges this. He says, the one who rejects me and does not receive my words. There are those who reject Jesus and do not receive his words. The question is, why? How could they not, how could they, they not want to see him? How could they not want to behold him? How could they not love him. John himself tells us this story from, or he, he cites these verses in, in Isaiah 6.10 and what is verse 40 in the Gospel of John here. It says, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart. Part of the reason that the blind don't see and their hearts don't beat with eternal life is because God has blinded their eyes. That seems cruel, but let me explain how God does that. He preaches the gospel to them and they harden their hearts to it. See, Isaiah was sent to preach the good news of salvation, to tell them that if they would see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, that he would heal them. And yet, when that life-giving message was right in front of them, rather than seeing the glory of God, rather than receiving it, their hearts hardened to it. And to my knowledge, every time we're told in Scripture that God hardens the heart of somebody, it's always 
it's always by preaching the gospel to them. If you go back even to Pharaoh in the book of Exodus, God is trying to give Pharaoh an off-ramp, and Pharaoh can't help it. He just hardens his heart when he hears the gospel. Uh, the commentator Matthew Henry, who was um, a commentator several hundred years ago, had a great saying. He said, um, he said, the same sun that melts the ice bakes the clay. He also said, the same sun that makes flowers fragrant makes manure smell. The same gospel that is preached, that some see and receive and behold and love and they turn and they're healed, is the gospel that many blind, blind their own eyes and they harden their heart and they reject him. Why? What, why is that? Why is it that some people, rather than receiving the, the gospel of the glory of God, would reject it? Well, John's very clear. Verse 42. It says, Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. See, the synagogue was the center of their social world center of their social universe, of all their relationships, their community. And, and, and many believe, but they didn't follow through with their belief. In other words, their belief didn't produce, produce confession. It didn't produce fruit. In other words, they had mental assent, but they did not cast their lot in with Jesus because they were afraid. They were fearful. And all the time, you and I reject the gospel, and others do too, because we are afraid of the loss. We're afraid that if we receive the gospel and all of its implications, that means that we will not have a leg to stand on. That means that if we, we're afraid of sharing the gospel because we're afraid of the ways it might alienate others. We're afraid of being thought of as one of those Christians. We're, 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 afraid of, of if I become a Christian, that means that there's going to be responsibility and obligation that, that, that I'm going to have to die to myself and I would be here to vindicate all of those fears and say yes to become a Christian, to follow Jesus every single time requires dying to yourself. And many reject Christ because they're afraid of the loss. But there's, there's a deeper there's something deeper still. It's not only because they're afraid of the loss, it's because of something else. Verse 43, for they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. See, this, this is a fear which is driven by love. Do you understand? It's a fear that's driven by love, not for something that's good and whole, but for something that the prophet Jeremiah calls a broken well a leaky bottle of water that will never give them eternal life. And they love that glory. They think that whatever it is that they're afraid of losing is going to really satisfy them. That their family is going to satisfy them and their relationships and their careers. And, and, and they're, they're afraid that if they lose that thing, then they will not have true life. They love that thing too much to lose it. They love the world too much to find Christ. And of course, the sad irony is 
that those things that we love, maybe even good things, will never be able to finally fulfill us. They'll never be able to satisfy us. The shiny things of this world are not true gold. They're false gold. The the prophet Jeremiah pointed this out. He said, my people have committed two evils. They've forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. They've turned away from me, the only one that can give them that glory and that purpose and that significance that they're longing for. The only one who can give them worth and who can give them affection. The, The only one who will never let them down. They've abandoned me. And instead of that, they've hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. They've, they've dug dry wells. They've, they've made leaky pots that, that will never give them the glory that they want. And they are afraid of losing that broken cistern in order to get the fountain of living water. The um, famous philosopher Conan O'Brien says this, If you leave with nothing else, he's, that, uh, he's giving a talk. He says today, leave with this. We have a culture that's constantly looking at our phones, at people that we think are so incredibly happy and have everything. And I will tell you for a fact the disparity, the difference between what they're projecting and how, how they are is monumental a lot of the time. It's not that these people are all miserable, but this Instagram age, this age of projecting wealth and fame, there's a lot of people out there who strive because they're insecure. They try harder because they're running from something. They're very unhappy. We see them driving a sports car laughing, thinking that's who they are. I remember that's when I first started, but it's not. There are so many people who want to be famous for fame's sake. And fame is nothing. Somebody who's reached the, the, the worldly peak of, of success, talking down to us from the top and saying, don't come up here. This is a broken cistern. It will never give you what you're longing for. It will never give you living water. It will never fill your soul. It will never satisfy you. And so we're, we're in a little bit of a pickle here. Because on the one hand, we've just said that, that there's this ultimate significance, this ultimate worth, this ultimate importance, that, there, that you and I are looking for glory, and that glory is found in the cross. And yet our hearts are so hard. Our hearts are so hard to the things of the Lord. How can we ever see that glory? How can we ever get a shot at that? How, how can we ever taste that, that bread of life? How can we ever drink that living water? Mercifully and thankfully, we believe in a Savior who gives sight to the blind. We believe in a Savior who gives sight to the blind. See, one of the the, the most important stories in the Gospel of John is how Jesus gives sight to the man born blind. And the disciples all say, why is this man blind? Is it his parents' fault or is is it his fault? Jesus says, it's for the glory of God. And Jesus heals his eyes. He spits into the dirt and he puts that spit onto his eyes and he sends him to go wash in a pool and he comes back and he can see. 
And the gospel connects that to true faith. That that's what God does for us. He cuts through our hard hearts. He wipes away the blindness from our eyes. He is the one who restores us to salvation, who gives us a vision of himself. And so maybe you're here this morning and you are thinking, my heart is so hard. I just don't know if I can see that glory. I just don't know if I can see Christ for all that he is. I, just, I don't know if I can believe. I don't know if I can have faith. Well, A, I just appreciate you for even coming through the doors of this place, for listening to this morning and taking part in our service. We love to have people who don't know where they're at spiritually here. And I would just tell you, I've never met anybody who, if they did not ask God and say, take away the hardness of my heart, where he would say, no. So maybe you're here this morning and you want a vision of that glory. You, you, you've never had it. You've never seen Christ for all that he is. You've, you've maybe heard the gospel, but it's never come across to you like this. I would say pray to the Lord and ask him to give you a new heart and ask him to take away the blindness from your eyes, to penetrate your hardness and your callousness so that you would see. In fact, we have prayed this morning that exactly that would happen that God would penetrate the, the eyes and the heart of those who do not know Christ so that he would graciously see fit to add to the number today those who are being saved. And if that's you today, I would love to talk with you after the service, and I would love to, to talk with you and to help you understand what it means to live as a Christian, but I have to land the plane and give some applications for now. So number one, Love true glory. Love true glory. Another way to say this is to be on guard for false glory. To quote Gandalf, all that glitters is not gold. When I was a a kid, we used to go hiking up in the mountains and uh, we, we would scoop up uh, this gravel from the ground and it would glitter and we'd think that we had struck gold and that we were going to be rich and come down with this bag of dirt. My parents would say, did you fall on a rock when you're up there? That's not real gold. Uh, we We are so feckle and fickle. We, we look at just about anything to see that anything that would catch our eyes and we assume that it's true. We, we assume these things that we're yearning after and striving after, they can give us true significance and true purpose. But they're really the only thing that can give us true significance and true purpose is Him. And so love true glory and be on guard for false glory. Love true glory and be on guard for false glory. I would say, as an application of this passage, that you and I must be on guard in our hearts for bitterness. We must be on guard in our hearts for bitterness. For, for that cancerous tumor that is, sits in our heart and turns everything that we see into poison. We must be on guard for cynicism, for a critical eye for, for things that would look at things in the worst possible light always. Because that is a sign that we are growing bitter and callous towards the things of the Lord. You and I must make sure, take great pain, make great effort that we would not have a hard heart. 
that we would not be caked over and calloused over because eternity is right there. We could just look at it. We could see the glory of God. We must be on guard for bitterness in our heart. Uh, Number three, when, when the cost of the gospel, when the cost of the gospel weighs us down, we must not lose sight of the gain. We must not lose sight of the gain. So often you and I are like the, the, the people, the authorities in this passage. We, we are afraid of the loss. We're afraid of the loss of losing our connections and our relationships. And so instead of giving up our leaky pots, we try to put duct tape around it so it doesn't leak anymore. And yet it still will leak. We're so afraid to let go of those leaky pots we're so afraid to abandon that dry well because we're so afraid of the loss. And yet, when we do give those things up, there's far more gain. The Apostle Paul, while he was sitting in prison getting ready to die, said, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. And he said, uh, this also in the same letter, everybody's favorite verse to take out of context. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. You know what Paul's talking about there? He's talking about holding fast to the faith even though he is losing everything else and not forsaking Christ even at the moment of his death. When, when the cost of becoming a Christian, the, the cost of giving up the glory that comes from man, weighs us down, we must keep our eyes on the gain. We, we must keep our eyes on the gain. We must be like the, the runner in Hebrews 12 who sheds those sins and anything else that would be a hindrance and run the race that is set out with us for endurance. Like Christ who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross and despised the shame. Number four, it's very clear in this passage that receiving the word of Christ is to receive Christ himself. Someone who would reject the word would reject Christ himself. So for you and I, if we are to be known as followers of Jesus, followers of Christ, we must listen to his word. We must discipline ourselves to receive his word daily. Jesus said in chapter 10, My sheep hear my voice. It ought not be different for us Christians. If sheep can know the voice of the shepherd, shouldn't you and I work hard enough to get to know the, sheep, uh, the voice of Christ? Shouldn't we listen for it and love it? Shouldn't we discipline ourselves to spend time in it? Maybe you're here and you don't know how to do um, a devotional. You don't know what that really looks like. I'd love to talk with you about that. But if you, if you never really had a devotional life, a time where you've uh, spent time regularly going through the Bible. I just encourage you to start simple, start small, start in one of the four Gospels, maybe John, maybe Matthew, maybe Luke. You could do Mark, but don't do Mark. Matthew came first anyways. Spend some time, 5, 10, 15 minutes, reading through the Bible and just praying about what you read. 
And I promise you, over time, you will grow with a hunger to acquire and to devour more of God's Word. If you are His disciple, you, it's not enough to receive Jesus. You must receive His Word. That, that faith will produce fruit. I'd also say from this, there's a, there's a number five, there's a danger when we hear messages like this to think, well, some people are hard-hearted, and therefore there's no hope for them. They're hard-hearted towards glory. And, and I would just tell you this. There's nothing in this passage that would indicate that, that some who are hard-hearted might not turn. In fact, the opposite is true. The opposite is true in verse 40. He says he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts. Or else, lest they would see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them healing and forgiveness and salvation is available to the one who turns to Christ. And so we must not lose hope over the hard-hearted. We must not lose hope over those sheep who refuse to look, but rather we must continue to pray for them and share the gospel with them and let the Lord see fit to do what the Lord would do. And finally, I'd say this. If the glory of God shines the brightest when things are darkest... If the worth of God becomes the most important when everything else falls away, then you and I as Christians ought to suffer well. We ought to suffer well when we get that medical diagnosis or things aren't going well at work or when things aren't going well at school or when we face disappointment in life. We ought to suffer well because suffering has a way of squeezing us and orienting us so that we look and behold the glory of Christ better. And so if you are suffering this morning and you are in pain this morning and there's just not light at the end of the tunnel, you don't know what you're going to do. Let me just encourage you. It's not wrong to pray that God would release that suffering if he feels fit, but that suffering is a gift. It's a gift meant to help you to see Christ better. Scripture says that God works all things for the good of those who love him. And so whatever it is that you're going through, that fits within that all things. So that you and I, when we go through those things, when the world rattles our cage and it shakes our bearings loose and we lose, it, we, we, it shakes our gaze off, the, off of the things of this earth, that when we turn towards the things of glory, that will never leave. So Christians, we ought to suffer well as we all, with unveiled faces, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed from one degree of glory to the next. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. We thank you that your word gives life and light. Thank you that your word shines brightly in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Father, we pray for us now as we are to partake of communion. We pray that you would prepare our hearts to receive this. Even as we take of this thing that is earthly and mortal, that we would have a sense of the weight of glory that we're taking in. And that through communion, you would purify our gaze so that we might see your son all the brighter. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Originally, um, I had planned to... uh, be one chapter farther along in the book of John. Um, 
here. So when I planned out our communion schedule, I planned out to, to celebrate communion with John 13, because John 13 is the last supper scene in the Gospel of John. Um, but it is oddly fitting that we would celebrate communion today. It's oddly fitting that we would celebrate communion today. Um, because here, there's the, all these themes that are intertwined in this chapter in the Gospel of John. There's these themes of, of the kingship of God and, and the suffering of the Messiah. That there's this, this theme of, of, of the Son who, who the Father has sent to give us life. All of these themes, they come together. It, it reminds me very much of the, the author to the, uh, of the epistle to the Hebrews who tells us in Hebrews 13.10 that we have an altar from which those who serve in the tent have no right to eat. Uh, later on, he'll say, let us go outside the camp to him. And the interesting thing about going outside the camp in the book of Hebrews is, is you have to ask, where is that? Where is Christ outside the camp? Well, the only answer, if you read Hebrews again and again and again, is that he is seated at the right hand of the Father on high. So when you and I go outside the camp, we come to the king on his throne who rules as our king. Even though everything else falls away, we, we draw near to him. See, the altar that we have a right to eat from is, is the altar uh, is nothing else than the throne of God where we draw near and we ascend to him and we participate with him and we, we find ourselves in him. When we take communion, we are drawing near to the throne of God itself. And so it's fitting that we, on this day where we've talked about the glory of God shining the brightest in the cross, that we would celebrate communion because in communion we're drawing near to the throne. Uh, for the purpose of communion here at Grace Bible Church, we, we ask a couple of things. We, we ask that you be um, a baptized member so we ask that you of a church. So we ask that you would have been baptized as a Christian, that you would have entered into the covenant community. We ask that you would go through the process of membership. We believe that's biblical and important, not necessarily here, but at a church. Um, so if you are visiting with us from another church today, we're glad to have you here, and you feel free to, to take the table if you're a member there. But we also ask that you be someone who's walking in repentance and faith, someone who turns away from your sins, turns away from the glory that comes from this world, and someone who, who is walking and trusting in the Lord. And maybe you're here and you... You're thinking some of those qualifications don't fit you. Maybe you're not even a Christian. You're like, should I take the answer? Is we are so glad to have you here if those don't, qualifications don't fit you. You should not feel odd or strange at all to be in this place. But we're just going to ask, we believe that this is an important thing. The book of 1 Corinthians tells us that the one who eats or drinks this in an improper manner eats or drinks judgment on themselves. We don't want anyone here to eat or drink judgment on themselves. So we're going to ask, we, we are so happy to have you here to be able to witness this celebration of the Lord's table. We're just going to ask that you respect our, our process here, and we are so happy to be here. I would love to talk with any, any of you about what that looks like. Now, the way this will look is, I, in just a second, I'm going to pray, and then I'm going to ask the elders to come forward, and they'll take those, the elements, and they'll distribute them, the bread first, and then also the cup. And then when everyone has had the bread, then we'll take the bread together, and when everyone's had the cup, we'll take the cup together. But right now I'm going to pray, and in, in this time of prayer, I'm going to leave a, a moment of silence. If there's any of you feel like you need to bring something to before the Lord, um, that would be a wonderful time to do that. But let's draw near to the Lord in prayer. Father, have we come before you as the one who's seated on the throne, the one about whom angels, the one around whom angels fly and sing to one another from all eternity, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. 
the whole earth is full of his glory. Father, we, we come before you and we draw near to you as the king on the throne. And like Isaiah, we are struck to the core because we ought not be here. By all natural rights, by all reason and rationality, we do not belong. And yet your son has seen fit to purify us and to cleanse us. So Father, I, I'm just going to leave a moment of silence. If anyone feels that they need to come before you and confess something to you, maybe there's something in their heart, something that they've said or done um, that they feel the need to bring before you, I'm just going to leave that freedom for them to do that now. Father, we thank you that your word says that if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we thank you that you are a God who keeps his promises, a God who does not abandon us, a God who does not fail us. And so I pray for us today that as we come near to your table, this would be a time of joy and celebration as we draw near to the God who forgives. It's in the name of your Son that we pray. Amen.